In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. I don't want this to be a history retreat, or one that concerns only on St. Thomas. We are concerned with our own selves. So I think that we should, towards the end of the day, this is the last talk, we should consider all the worlds a stage again. It's no less true now than it was this morning. And for those of us who want to be like St. Thomas More in the lay life, uh, we really do need to think of the banners he made as a master More when he was young, because this changed his whole approach. You'll see tomorrow, I hope gradually, what a tremendous task was placed on him by God, from being a timid man who wanted to be a monk to escape, and not all monks are like that, he then had the courage to become a married man and a father, and then was called by the king, most unwillingly, to go to court and get into politics, which cost him his head. And he knew it was going to do so. This idea, when he became Lord Chancellor, was a great honor. Uh, Professor Chambers, for one, makes it so clear. He knew exactly when he decided to be Chancellor that it would probably lead to disaster for him. And he went right on, right up to the moment when the axe fell. So that it was a tremendously strong character based indeed, first of all, on the different ages of man and at the end eternity. And this is true for you and me, even tomorrow or next week, who knows when, what stage you'll get to, you may not be sans teeth when you die, you don't know when it's going to happen. But the ultimate thing eventually is that there is a moment in my life when I've got to decide whether there's a next world or not. I haven't had much time to mention utopia, but I will try. It's difficult in a short retreat to do everything at once. But in utopia, these pagans could belong to any church they liked, or any sect, or any religion. The only condition was you couldn't be in Parliament or help in the government unless you believed in the next world. That wouldn't be a bad thing for America or England. Because if you believe in the next world, then you've got something on which to base morality and uh, some sort of final goal. I don't honestly believe otherwise that things passed by Congress, etc., uh, they're, they're, they're not moored. So more even in Utopia, where he had a state that wasn't Catholic or Protestant or anything, whether you agree it or not, that was one of the conditions he laid down. So therefore we ought to think of what we thought about this morning. Then secondly, and nothing can ever take its place, is the question of prayer. That if you're going to put yourself in dangerous places, as Moore had to do, to mix with people who have all persuasions, views of morality, sex, not only sex, but pride, riches. If you're going to mix with them, you're bound to be affected unless you have God's strength. Most of us don't do that. 
or we do it every now and then. And that's why when you come on retreat, it's not too late to start and say, now that's all I'm going to do is every day I'm going to make God clear to God that I am his servant today. Years and years and years ago, Canon Cardine, who later became a cardinal, a wonderful Belgian, who founded the Young Christian Workers, he came to England and talked to a great group of working lads up in Lancashire. And he said to them that you're not going to be able to say any prayers in the morning. You're too busy, you've got to get to work early, you're late, your mum's in a temper, etc., etc. So don't think you're going to pray a lot. But he said, get a crucifix, a little crucifix, or wooden cross, and hold it up as the priest does the host. Hold it up to heaven in the early morning and then put it on your pillow and go to work. And you've said your morning prayers. Well, I don't know whether these chaps have done that since, but I did. I was a chaplain and I listened to it. I thought, what a clever idea. So I got a little cross and I, for about a month I forgot to do anything at all. Then I did it once or twice. Then I thought of Cardinal Cardine. And then I eventually found a little cross I liked without a figure and I held that up to, into the air. And I've done it ever since. Once, once you formed a habit, it's splendid. It goes on indefinitely. So I was there, I was. I still have it. I carry it around with me. Not that it's got any merit. Mass is much better. Longer prayers are better. The Psalms are better. But the great thing is, if you can't put your forehead on the ground, at least don't start the day without letting God know that you want to be in touch with him. Otherwise, you turn into an atheist. Very quickly goes, and very quickly comes if you try. So I find that more when he burst out into the world, it was against the grain in a way for him, he was a very frightened man, as you'll see in his last book he wrote in the Tower out of London, but a remarkably brave man. So therefore, he was called a man for all seasons. I suppose in history there's no title more tremendous than that. Now, that wasn't made up by, certainly not made up by this chap, Jasper uh, Ridley, nor explained by him. Uh, but it was made up when Moore was 24 by a contemporary. It was a, said of him when he was 24 that there's nobody so beautifully tempered in our country and like Mr. Thomas Moore, the man for all seasons. Bolt pinched the name from a contemporary source. Now, I couldn't imagine anything more wonderful to be said of anyone, man or woman, at the end of their lives, that when you're happy or sad or melancholy or whatever it is, they'll understand. Now, that's not done by human power alone, and that's why I feel all these books are so unfair. So, therefore, we did think about that. I'd hate the retreat to end with us thinking, well, he's a smashing man, and I hope the book sells. Not this book, certainly not. So then we come on, whatever our age, just one more mention of Mr. Ridley, because he says a revolting thing. I think he ought to be writing for the, that Washington paper owned by the Moonies. He has a most extraordinary statement right at the, in his introduction, which it's hard to believe. He said, talks about Wolsey first, well, I, I leave him out. And then he goes on to say, that we've got to think over our verdict on more. Now, there are some things you've got to think over. But he then goes on to say, 
Um, a careful examination of Moore reveals that the accusations of Fox and his successors have not been disproved as effectively as is generally believed. That Moore's love for his family is largely a myth. Now, could you imagine, he's a liar on that point. He's quite right on some of his criticisms of what Moore wrote against Luther. He could find fault with Moore in this way or that way. But all the documents of history, absolutely every one, makes clear that the one motive in Moore's life when he married was his wife and children. To call it a myth, and to prove it's a myth, I'll show you the quotation he gives, which is so childish that you wouldn't believe it. Because poor Meg, when she was married, she got very ill. She was nearly dying. And all the doctors were told, he's made up a whole paragraph. I don't read out any of his sentences because they're all made up. But the only fact he gives is rubbish. The strange thing is, when the physicians had all said they couldn't do anything, then, as Roper tells us, Moore went to his oratory to pray, asking God if it was his will to spare her life. That he did. That, uh, Roper tells us that. Roper also tells us that when Moore came back, he said to the doctors, will you give her an enema? This chapter suggests that the Holy Ghost said an enema, but I don't think there's any proof of that at all. Moore went to pray and he had a bright idea, as Roper said. It suddenly dawned on him, he didn't say it came from God, it all comes from God. He didn't say give her her Lord's water, no, he said give her an enema. And she was given an enema, she had the yellow fever, and she was cured. As happens, there was the right cure. Now, whether God told him whether he was... He wasn't charismatic, I don't think, but at any rate, that's what he did. So, therefore, Ripley goes on... From, Latimer goes on from there to say, Ridley, Roper tells the story to show more saintliness and God's special favor to him and adds a revealing detail. Now, this is revealing detail. When Meg recovered, Moore said that if she had died he would have retired to a monastery, abandoning all interest in worldly affairs. This seems to confirm not only his great love for his daughter, Meg, but his lack of affection for his wife and his other children. Now, could you imagine a more dishonest deduction, seeing that there are hundreds of letters that he wrote about them all, that he wrote to every one of them, that when he was dying in the tower, they all came to say goodbye to him on Tower Hill, they waved goodbye to him at Chelsea. He mentions them all. They all suffered. They all kept his letters until they were old, old people. All that because he said when his daughter retired that if you died, I would have retired. But this is the sort of nonsense. Now, I want to stress today to you, just in this meditation, all of you with children or dealing with any children, and that is what more substituted for his contemplative life. When he found himself a layman, he just behaved like anyone else. That confessor just said, a very decent fellow, he was my confessor, came to confession most faithfully, didn't eat much, a very distinguished man. That's all they said about him. They didn't say he had a halo or that he scourged himself, anything. So that wasn't what made him holy. But what I find is, wonderful thing came into his life. And the first thing that happened, of course, was, was that he suddenly realized that it's a wonderful statement. He didn't make it up, but he loves it. It comes all his life. And that is that wonder is the basis of worship. That if you want to love God in the world, 
you've got to look at wonderful things. And in his day, you could do it, and we could today, but many of us don't. If you read our papers, they're not full of wonder. They're full of murders, and they're full of gripes and all sorts of things. No, wonder is the basis of praying. That because then, in nature, and all that, you see God. So what's so marvelous with Moore, he started, of course, with his love of gardens. And you'll find that in Utopia, there's enormous details about the gardens of the Utopians. He did the same. And that flowers were, in a central way, a beginning uh, to holiness. Not a, you don't have to be a nut. And some, some gardeners, you'd shoot them at sight. But it's extraordinary, his amazing love. We're told here, with the Utopians, they set great store by their gardens. In them they have vineyards of all manners of fruits, herbs, flowers, so pleasant, so well furnished, and so finely kept, that I never saw anything more fruitful or better trimmed in any place. Their study and diligence in this comes not only from pleasure, but from a certain strife and contention that is between street and street concerning the trimming, husbanding, and furnishing of their gardens. Every man for his own part. Now he did that at home, right next to the mansion house, and later in Chelsea. He took an enormous interest in his vineyards and all the children. All his kids were brought up with a love of gardening. We all know that if I'd only been taught when I was young, I was 55 before I put my first flower in, he died. <laughs> but I mean, if only one had been, I've known people who in old age, all the world's a stage, sans teeth, sans eyes, but with a garden. And it's wonderful what a garden can do. It can be a prayer. So we start with the gardens. Erasmus, who loved Moore so much and knew him so well and lived in his house and saw the mess, Erasmus wrote, one of his amusements is the observing the forms and characters and instincts of different animals. Accordingly, there is scarcely any kind of bird that he does not keep about his residence and the same of other animals not quite so common as monkeys, foxes, ferrets, weasels, and the like. Besides these, if he meets with any strange object imported from abroad or otherwise remarkable, he is most eager to buy it and has his house so well supplied with these objects that there is something in every room which catches your eye as you enter it and his own pleasure is renewed every time he sees others interested. You know, I learnt an enormous amount from that, because really Moore tells us what the Victorians knew so well, and that is the value of having objects about the room that start conversation. He didn't ever spend much money on it, but he used to buy all sorts of strange things, like the fly in amber and all sorts of funny objects. So in every room you've got a conversational piece. You know, the ordinary person who comes in doesn't know what to say, <laughs> saying, what, how's the weather? No, but if they see a sort of stuffed monkey there or something, my God, <laughs> you're off. Every visitor had something interesting to start them off, and then all these animals in the garden. And these, of course, were famous. And in his famous portrait by Holbein, he had his little dog, and he had a monkey, and he, he discussed with the artist, and they wrote notes as to whether the monkey should sit next to him, the monkey was put in the corner next to Mrs. <laughs> Lady, Lady, oh, Alice had the monkey, did. She's over there, and he had the little dog. 
But all the children had dogs, and, the, and we all do it today. It's very, very educational and it's spiritual to study animals and to love them. I don't recommend this too fully because somebody I gave a retreat to, Dr. Wilson of Galveston, when I went down to see him in Galveston a little later on, he'd got a monkey. I said, what the hell's that doing here? He said, oh, I, you said Thomas More had one, so I've got one. <laughs> and the doctor, who was a cancer man, you saw him in the garden with a monkey like a baby, and it hoovered, it kind of shaved him. He said, oh, the monkey loved him, was sort of patting him all over the face, so that was splendid. I thought, well, Thomas More knows what he's doing, but the monkey was anti-female. And it ended up by chasing the mayoress of Galveston down the street. She had to nip into her house and it banged on the window pane. So put that poor monkey failed. They had to give it to the Boy Scouts and it was taken away. And the Boy Scouts took it to some sort of marina where they were having a water festival. And the, all the crowds were clapping and cheering and a whole lot of seagulls flew over and the monkey put his hand up, caught a seagull and bit its head off. <laughs> so since then I feel Thomas More didn't have gulls on the Thames, but, but it's very interesting for his children. Now, you see, with his children, More started off in a most extraordinary way. How he did it, I don't know. He did it, their homework with them. Because he reckoned that children will always be better when grown-ups are there and help them, and when they see grown-ups doing it. In Utopia, he didn't like the children being all grouped together in one place and the adults somewhere else. In fact, he says somewhere because, uh, no, because the adults, if they're there, can teach the children how to behave, and the children, if they're there, can teach the adults how to pray, which is rather a nasty knock. But it's so, they all had to go in a group. As we know with confession, he and his wife and children all went round to each other at the end of the week and apologized for anything they'd done wrong. Which is, again, I feel that we all do that, but... It's, hard to, it's nice to think that this is really a way, if you love God, that you make your home. When the children were very small, Meg and Elizabeth were the first two, and then Cecily and John were the other two, and then he brought in all these others. He had an adopted child, and also he had Meg's wet nurse join the family and her child. He had about 70 in his school at the end. When they married, they all lived in his house at Chelsea, and their children turned up. So. Gradually, the class school got very big. He began with his own little tots by putting the alphabet up, and they all had to fire bows and arrows at the letters, with him all pinging away at the Greek letter. <coughs> Greek! So they learned the whole Greek alphabet when they were about three years old. A bit late for your children now. But it was extraordinary. He, he did the homework with them. He wrote an essay with them on the four last things. He wrote down what he thought of the four last things, and they wrote down what they thought. Their versions have perished, not entirely, his hasn't. As I said in the sermons the other day, he started off by saying to his children that if you have to take medicine, you go to the pharmacist, and the pharmacist gives you a very bitter medicine that costs a lot, and he puts it, herbs from far away, and then you have to take it, and then everybody takes a different medicine. But the medicine that I'm going to give you, you don't have to take, you only have to think of it. Death, judgment, hell and heaven. Extraordinary how vivid it is. And then they wrote with him. His, his little version, he never published it, it wasn't finished, 
but n now it's in his works. You, you can read it. All, uh, all about executions and what it feels like to die. It's most, like Shakespeare, it's absolutely filled with corpses. But then, funny enough, his Megan is, and her daughter, and you'll find when he's dead and gone, you'll find his phrases in their letters. That obviously it worked. So his love for his children, being a lawyer, he then came home and brought cases like you get, you have on your television, we have on ours, ours is called Crown Court. He would come home with a case and he would be the, the defending counsel and Meg would be for the Crown. And so they would argue. Moore would argue quite dishonest cases. He would stand up for, for what was wrong to get his daughter to stand up for what was right. Now all this moved along so that the children, all the way along, his love for them, when he went, eventually joined the court and had to go away on embassies, he started by going to Belgium many times for the wool trade, that was his line in London. When he joined the Crown, then he had to go to, like we do, to negotiate probably somewhere like Geneva on the nuclear disarmament thing. He was one of those wretched chaps who are carted around all day with the high brass. And he was a lawyer for the Crown. He wasn't like Woolsey, a great man. He was just an ordinary lawyer on trade mainly. And he couldn't see his children. So that's why they wrote to him. Some of the letters they wrote were simply marvelous, loving ones. Some were letters that were written so that they would write perfectly. In fact, he gives them a thing to write it in rough first and then write into your father, write it out again, uh, in, right, and then I'll write. And he did the same. He answered them all. How Ridley can say he only loved one daughter because he mentions John ever so often. He praises Elizabeth several times for being so modest when her mother wasn't in the room. He says some children aren't even modest when their mother is in the room. It was really a most wonderful trouble he took. One of the most moving of all the letters, if I can mark find it, is, I think, this is one to Margaret, if I've got the right place. Yes, it's this one. He wrote it in 1522 from court. He joined the court then. It's the perfect letter. How Ridley can write that rubbish when he hasn't read this letter. Thomas More to his dearest daughter Margaret, greeting. I need not express the extreme pleasure your letter gave me, my darling daughter. You will be able to judge better how much it pleased your father when you learn what delight it caused to a stranger. I happened that evening to be in the company of the Reverend Father John Bishop of Exeter, a man of deep learning and of wide reputation for holiness. While we were talking, I took out of my pocket a paper that bore on our business, and by accident your letter appeared. He took it into his hand with pleasure and began to examine it. When he saw from the signature that it was a letter from a lady, he expressed surprise. His surprise led him to read it more eagerly. When he had finished, he said he would never have believed it to be your work unless I assured him of the fact. And he began to praise it in the highest terms. Why should I hide what he said? For its pure Latinity, its correctness, its erudition, its expressions of tender affection, Seeing how delighted he was, I showed him your speech that you prepared. He read it, and also some of your poems, 
with a pleasure so far beyond what he had hoped that although he praised you most effusively, yet his countenance showed that his words were all too poor an expression of what he felt. He took out at once from his pocket a gold coin, which you will find enclosed in this letter. I tried in every possible way to decline it, but was unable to refuse to take it to send it to you as a pledge and token of his goodwill towards you. This hindered me from showing him the letters of your sisters, <laughs> for I feared that it would seem as though I had shown them to him to obtain from the others too a gift, <laughs> which embarrassed me to have accepted for you. But as I have said, he is so good that it is a joy to have pleased him. Write him your thanks carefully in the nicest letter you can. You will one day be glad to have given pleasure to such a charming man. Farewell. Now you see, how he could, Ridley could say that he didn't love his family, I can just see the poor chap with all these letters falling out of his pocket. So therefore, when we come to this question of uh, Thomas More and the children, there's all that wonderful thing of wonder. And that's what I really ought to end my thing on. There's such beautiful expressions he wrote. Now this quotation, it's a marvelous one. It comes from his uh, book against Tyndall. It's not at all a, a thing you'd say, well, this is against heretics. If I, if I can find it, I've lost the place now for the moment. I marked it. Here it is. Now, isn't this a beautiful passage? And he's writing this in his English works. Acquaintance and familiarity take away our wonder so that we wonder no more at the ebbing and rising of the sea, or the Thames for that matter, because we see it every day. That's true of the Potomac for those who live here. But he that has never seen it or heard of it would at first sight wonder, saw thereat, to see the great water come wallowing up against the wind, keeping a common course to and fro, with no cause perceived that drives him. If a man born blind had suddenly his sight, what wonder would he make to see the sun, the moon, and all the stars? Whereas one who has seen them sixteen years together marvels not so much as at them as he would wonder at the sight of a peacock's tail. He had absolute fascination for peacock's tail. It is a form of prayer. For this reason I cannot understand why we should hold it more wonderful to revive a dead man than to witness the breeding, birth and growth of a child into a man. No more marvelous is a cuckoo than a cock, though the one be seen only in the summer and the other the whole year round. And I am sure that if you saw dead men as commonly recalled to life by miracle, as you see men brought forth by nature, you would reckon it less wonderful to bring a soul back into the body, which still has its shape and not so much perished, than from a little seed to make all the gear anew and make a new soul thereto. More was thrilled with the births of babies. I won't read it anymore, but all through his life with his children, 
they all grew up to this extraordinary thing that wonders the basis of worship and if you look at wonderful things like animals, insects, etc., uh, then, and the stars, that's why his children all learnt astronomy, then when they grew up, they had that same extraordinary sense of God. That's why I do commend to you all, as I know need to, the wonderful television shows about animals and insects. I'm coming to like bats now and all sorts of revolting things when you find they've got love in their lives and they, they lay eggs and... And when they smack their children, I bless them. I think it's, I wish we did the same. Because I see bears all doing this, where we don't do it. As Thomas More says, that with children, we bribe them with presents from early childhood. Even before they're born practically, we say, if you do that, I'll give you this. And we end up with them all totally conceited. The first thing we've got to get them to do is to do a thing worth doing because it's worth doing. So we ought to think of wonder and how with our children and with our lives and with the old, and looking at the Potomac, what a prayer it is to see God's hand in nature around you.